Welcome to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. I'm your host, Umbreen Khan. Virginia's newly elected Republican governor, Glenn Youngkin, is making national headlines with a flurry of executive orders. The most recent, an email tip line created for parents to report if they see something divisive being taught in public schools. This latest move is being hailed by his campaign supporters as delivering on a promise to curtail what he calls critical race theory. However, critical race theory is not being taught in Virginia public schools, but rather critics say the tip line is intended to intimidate teachers from exploring the racial history and concepts that may make some students uncomfortable. There are so many unanswered questions about the tip line, from who decides what is divisive to the consequences. But Virginia's not alone. In East Tennessee, not far from the Virginia border, McMinn's school district officials voted to ban a graphic novel, but it's not just any graphic novel. It's a Pulitzer Prize-winning story about the Holocaust. Defending their decision, the school district cited objectionable content. Now, they're making international news on Holocaust Remembrance Day, a global moment encouraging all of us to engage with the uncomfortable history about one of the darkest chapters in the 20th century. While Youngkin's executive order and the McMinn School District's decision to ban this graphic novel are not on their face related, they beg a bigger question. How can we engage with historical events and religious history in a way that deepens understanding, even across difficult divides. This week on Inspired, we explore that question. For historian Benjamin Park, this has never been a more exciting time. I love that challenge of being able to convince the students that there is an intellectual and political and cultural history that led to this point and that we can actually make sense of where we are today by looking at you know, where we were in the past. Park is an assistant professor of history at Sam Houston State University in Texas. He came to our attention because a listener shared an essay that Park contributed to a new collaborative digital resource, Uncivil Religion. It's a project between the University of Alabama Department of Religion and the Smithsonian Institute. Later in the episode, we'll learn more about the initiative. First, my conversation with a history professor who explains how his faith actually inspired his scholarship. I was raised in the LDS faith, so that was my entry point to religious history, and then religious history was my entry point to the American Revolution. I believe only understanding all of those things in harmony can we understand a particular uh, vantage point of, of American culture. How, as a history professor, do you approach the topic of the American Revolution today, given all that's happening in our political world and in our civic discourse? Well. 
the good news is I don't have to spend a lot of time convincing my students that the history matters and that the American Revolution actually means something for us today because all they have to do is turn on their TVs or open up the social media and they'll see pictures and images of people saying the founders would be are betrayed or that the revolution is over or the revolution has begun. And so I think everyone recognizes that they are in in many ways, both an unprecedented time that what's happening now is new and hasn't been done before, but also a time that really is is deeply connected to the past. And to actually prove the credibility and validity of their movement now, they have to connect it to, you know, what the founders did or what the revolutionaries did. How do you navigate teaching uh, across the fault lines? It's very difficult, especially in a time to where we're being told what we can and cannot teach from a state and national level and and from a public level. And now that parents of students are all the more wanting to be involved on what their children are being taught. Um, I address it head on. I tell my students on the first day that in case you all haven't noticed, these things are difficult and these things raise lots of tensions. And so what we're going to do in this class is we are going to address these topics. First, I'm going to equip you with the information so that unlike a majority of the people who are blowing hot air uh, into this discourse, you're actually going to be equipped to address these topics. And then we're going to address them and we're going to talk about why it's hard to talk about our past, why, you know, the transfer of power is so important, why debates over whether this is a Christian nation is hardly a new topic. I don't know if it's because I'm naive or just stupid, but I feel that if we can get the topics on the board and discuss it, that we are all the better as a result. You know, when we just passed this anniversary of January 6th, a moment that even the debate of what you call it Right. Causes controversy for some. It is an insurrection, the deadliest attack that has happened in the United States Capitol uh, in an attempt to interrupt the transfer of power, as you just described to others. They see uh, the signs of empowered people seeking to hold accountable those in power. When you look at it and you look at how folks uh, have been talking about where we are just a few weeks now past that anniversary. What sticks out to you? Well, I think there's both good news and bad news that that immediately comes to mind when you ask that poignant question. On the one hand, the good news is I think history can show us that none of this is new and that perhaps the details and the actual animosity, it may be to a new degree and we're facing new challenges. That, that's all new and I'll grant that. But In my class on the American Revolution that I just taught a few minutes ago, we talked about how the American Revolution itself, the terms that were used, were politicized in the 1770s. Was it a revolution or was it a civil war or was it an insurrection? We read one historian who said, what if we looked at the patriots not as patriots or revolutionaries, but as insurrectionists? Does that change the way we view the crisis that took place in 1775 to 1776? So I think one of the things that historians can do when looking at the January 6th moment is we can help people understand that the terms we use to define these are packaged with layers of meaning. 
And it is our job to dissect those and show what they mean. And I think that's an important part of the conversation itself. That's the good news that we can provide some context for these events and the uh, anniversaries of them. The bad news is when I look at the debate over how we think about the January 6th insurrection is that we're not just not using the same language, we're often not using the same facts anymore. And as a historian, your first rule is to gather the facts and the evidence together so that you can make your argument. But when we look at the public discourse, we're seeing separate spheres of facts, dare I say alternative facts, uh, to construct these different narratives. And when we have these bifurcated spheres of knowledge that makes this discussion, this, this public dissection, which is crucial to democracy, all the more difficult. You use the term alternate facts, which always gives me pause, because if something's a fact, how can there be an alternate fact? Right. Right, which which goes into this term of what are we defining as truth? And we're not holding similar truths in common. The the phrase, as, as I'm sure many people listening are aware, that was a phrase that Kellyanne Conway, one of uh, Trump's spokespersons, used a number of, of years ago. And of course, as you know, there is no such thing as an alternate facts. There are facts. We can dispute the meanings of them. Perhaps we can dispute the foundations of its historical uh, you know moments and so forth. But there should be a sense that we can come to a, you know, a shared knowledge of the, of the bare facts. And when you're creating alternative sense of alternative facts, that typically means you're constructing alternative forms of authority of who gets to define what is a truth. And when you have these competing spheres of authority defining what is truth, that makes discussion all the more impossible. How do you create a space to turn an event like January 6th into a teachable moment? I think there are two tools that I bring to the table when I discuss things like January 6th in my classroom. And I did this when I teach incoming freshmen last semester, American history. We brought up the issue of of January 6th within the longer uh, pedigree of political history. And the first thing I need to emphasize is that there's no one meaning that comes out of these events. Even those who stormed the Capitol that day, they came for different reasons, for different purposes, and they took different lessons from it. So I want my students to understand the variety of experiences and the variety of interpretations. But you can't leave it there because that would just fall into interpretive anarchy that everyone has different truths. Then you have to take the next step and contextualize those meanings, contextualize why did some people feel that the government had gotten to such a point that storming the Capitol and halting the counting process of the Electoral College, why was that their only recourse uh, to justice? And then we need to place that in context. The, the historian context is always the most important thing because that's what's going to understand the broader meaning. And, I, and for me, helping students understand, A, the diversity of these experiences, but B, the context of what led them to do those things, that's when you typically, if you ever see the aha move moments of the students, they're like, oh, this understands because A, it's okay to be sympathetic 
or in some cases, empathetic to those who are doing these events, as long as you're able to understand what led them to do it, then makes you understand their reasoning. And then you can actually have a discussion. So placing something like a January 6th on a dissection table to where you say, we are discussing this as a historical moment, which is difficult, of course, because people are still reading an act of meaning into it. But we are going to dissect it, tear out the individual pieces and understand what the various motivations and then place them within their broader context, that's where students actually get a a sense of, okay, that's how I understand what actually took place. You know, as you describe that dissection process, so much is dependent on actually understanding the context. And I have to tell you, you came to my attention because a listener of our program uh, sent me an email Uh, linking an article that you wrote for a project that sought to provide some clarity, some context on the religious symbolism and the religious um, meaning that some sought to tap into on that day. And it was on the misidentification, I think, by a national news network of an individual who was at the Capitol on January 6th, dressed in what was described as a Roman centurion. You saw that. Tell me when that came across your screen and why you decided to, as you say, offer some context and set the record straight. Yeah, I was like many Americans, uh, you know, following the news feverishly from my office desk, looking at all the updates and all the the pictures and videos coming out. And I remember having my stomach drop when I saw this figure dressed in, you know, a Roman centurion uh, costume, which I'm pretty sure that's probably what it was when he bought it, but he was not using it to be a Roman soldier. He was using it to portray a Mormon prophet, a figure out of the Book of Mormon. I knew this instinctively as soon as I saw it, because along with his costume, he was holding up this banner that I immediately recognized as the, the title of liberty, which is a story from the Book of Mormon. In a book of Alma in the Book of Mormon, a freedom fighter named Petra Moroni fought for his freedom in around, I, I like to say 76 BC, because 76 it is so popular. But before Christ came to Jerusalem, in this land, Book of Mormon is about this land, right? And the same fight for freedom, this land, the same land right here upon which we stand, Petra Moroni ripped his coat and he wrote this message right here. In memory of our God, and our religion, and our freedom, and our peace, our wives and our children. And it was called the title of liberty, and he held it up high when he fought against the kingmen. And they slayed the kingmen, and I'm here to represent that. Basically, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, they have the scriptural text that is uh, proclaimed to be an ancient record of God's chosen people living in the Americas, and that these God's chosen people who were Christians, uh, there were warring factions between one group and another, the believing group and the non-believing group. And the believing group at one point was led by this righteous leader named Captain Moroni, or at least he led their military forces. And he led them against this, this wicked army. Um, and 
by leading them, he led them not just, you know, to a physical victory, but to moral victory, that he was fighting on behalf of the wives and children and their liberty. And he rent his coat and wrote out his title of liberty. And they marched behind this banner. And so I saw this figure on TV and I'm like, oh, no, that's a Mormon uh, figure uh, joining in the insurrection. And it reaffirmed to me a few things that I wrote about in the essay that you kindly mentioned, uh, this idea of Mormons becoming much more libertarian, much more conservative, and, and feeling comfortable in drawing from their Mormon scripture and doing so, which is why I wrote this essay placing this Captain Moroni figure within this broader context of what would lead a Mormon man like this individual to dress up as Captain Moroni to defend, you know, Donald Trump's uh, election tally on January 6, 2021. Tell us a little bit more about who he was and why he would be someone that one would want to emulate at a protest. In the Mormon world, especially in Mormon scripture, there is a fine line between religious and secular leaders. Uh, and by fine, I mean almost indiscernible. Uh, so those who are righteous leaders could be leading both the government and religious communities. So there, there's not so much a separation of church and state. So what Captain Moroni represented is someone who is willing to stand up for God's law. Also probably an outsider, someone uh, who is yes, maybe connected to the establishment through the media, but willing to do the right thing to defy whatever the general regulations are, which is what Captain Ronai does, because at some point he even turns on his own leader that he feels isn't, you know, supporting his righteous cause. And so Captain Moroni in LDS circles represents someone who's willing to uh, go to extremes to defend righteousness, mm-hmm. um, which... This wasn't the first time that Captain Moroni popped up in political discourse over the last year. Uh, Just a few months previous in some of the campaign events leading to the 2020 election, Mike Lee, who was a senator from Utah, speaking to a predominantly Mormon audience in Arizona, said Donald Trump is our Captain Moroni because he is willing to stand up for our rights. So when they're drawing on him, in fact, at one point, this figure who dresses up at Captain Moroni, he explains Captain Moroni to a journalist saying he's basically the Mormon William Wallace, uh, which, you know, depicting the the Scottish nationalist and the great Braveheart figure in Mel Gibson garb, uh, someone who is willing to stand up and shout freedom. And that's basically what Captain Moroni represents. From a historical perspective, was he an actual person? He is a figure only found in the scriptural texts of Book of Mormon. So Mormons who believe that the Book of Mormon is a historic record of the ancient peoples, they would say, of course, he's a a historic figure. Those who don't believe in the Book of Mormon, they say, well, he's kind of a a literary figure who who stands up. So this would be one of those to where if you are a believing Latter-day Saint, he is a historical figure who actually existed. And those who are like, well, outside the faith would think, well, he's about as real as Huckleberry Finn. Mm. After the break, we continue my conversation with Dr. Benjamin Park, author of Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire on the American Frontier. He's also the editor of A Companion to American Religious History. After the break, Park offers some historical and political context 
as to how the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints evolved from pariahs and outsiders to power brokers inside the GOP, and how those political loyalties is starting to challenge the church hierarchy in unexpected ways. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. We'll be right back after this short break. Hi, friends. I hope you're enjoying the show so far. I just want to say thank you. Thank you for listening. Thank you for being part of our community. I don't know if you know this, but we are on the air all the way from Richmond, Virginia to Ketchikan, Alaska, and in so many places in between. We're a national show, and we are a small and mighty team committed to bringing you stories and sounds from around the world that convey not only the diversity and the pluralism of our country, but the beliefs that are shaping our world, our politics, our culture, and the ideas that sustain us and inspire us to think about where we are going. And that brings me to this question. If you value us, if you enjoy listening and appreciate what you're hearing, I want to ask you to take a moment to consider becoming a sustaining member of Interfaith Voices or make a one-time donation at interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. That's interfaithradio.networkforgood.com. Thank you. And let's get back to the show. Welcome back to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. If you're just joining, I'm talking with historian Benjamin Parks. His areas of interest, revolutionary politics and Mormon studies in America. Before the break, he was explaining that a Mormon scriptural figure, Captain Maroney, has become a symbol for Mormons who support Donald Trump. As evidence Park points not only to the protesters who showed up at the U.S. Capitol on January 6th dressed as Captain Maroney, but to a campaign rally in which Arizona Senator Mike Lee was using Maroney as a way to rally his fellow faithful to support the re-election of then-President Donald Trump. It's a stark contrast when you take a step back and look at Mormon history. Once outsiders, now key allies and power brokers. As we get back to the conversation, I pose this question. What is the symbolism and significance of invoking a Mormon figure at a campaign rally? As, as any good historian does, I have three answers to it, going from the long term to the shorter term. Um, long term on the Mormon acceptance and Mormon culture, I think it's important to note that Mormon politicians 50 years ago speaking in Arizona probably would have been terrified to bring up the Book of Mormon and defending a politician because to gain 
American acceptance and assimilation, Mormons did all they could to downplay their distinctive features. And they tried to emphasize our commonality with other Americans. And so if, if and, uh, and with other Mormons, Christians, right? Absolutely. With other Christians, the Book of Mormon was like, that's the third rail. That's what's proving that we're different. We don't want to emphasize that. So if a Mormon senator were to go down to Arizona to, to uh, stump for a presidential candidate, they would have drawn from the Bible. They would have used biblical characters, not Book of Mormon characters. So the fact that Mike Lee felt comfortable using Captain Moroni in likening to uh, uh, Donald Trump, I think that showed uh, a comfort level of Mormons feeling that we are in the mainstream now. We don't have to feel about our dis- we don't have to feel awkward about our distinctive nature. I think that's a shift over the last fifty years. The medium term context is the fact that the Mormons would compare Captain Moroni to Donald Trump is crucial because, you know, up to a couple of decades ago, like many in the religious right, they wanted political leaders who matched their moral ethics and their religious ideals. We don't want someone who's just going to look after our interests. We want someone who matches our values. I don't think you can find someone who is more asymmetrical to Mormon and religious right values than Donald Trump. And yet both Mormons and white evangelicals back Donald Trump at high numbers. And so I think that shows a major transition over the last few decades of this religious right identifying themselves and finding commonality more on political issues rather than moral issues. So I think that's the mid-range context. And then the short-term context, the fact that Mike Lee felt it was necessary to go talk to Mormons in Arizona to back Donald Trump, I think showed this fear that Mormons weren't going to back Donald Trump and that they needed to reaffirm that support uh, for the American right and the Republican Party. So I think there's multiple contexts to explain why Mike Lee's comments comparing to Donald Trump to Captain Moroni were quite significant in the broader story of Mormonism and American politics. When you describe the relationship between uh, the leadership and the hierarchy of the church and political figures. What do you see as some of the areas to pay close attention to, to better understand how this political um, influence may be used? Yeah, I think there's a big tension at the heart of the LDS church right now that is probably reflective of the broader tension of American religion writ large, especially in the American Christian context, to where for decades, there have been Mormon leaders, just like there have been white evangelical leaders, who have been doing a lot to align their religious tradition with the American political right, pushing skepticism toward the liberal establishment, denouncing secular truths, trying to reaffirm the authority of of biblical, fundamental, conservative Uh, doctrines to the point now that Mormonism is often synonymous with this conservative culture to the point to where even church leaders might not be able to, you know, control as much as we have in the past. I think the best example of this is how LDS culture has handled the pandemic. Um, Mormonism, for at least a half century now, has been very pro-vaccine. Church leaders have been pro-vaccine on, on uh, unlike, you know, uh, Seventh-day uh, Adventists or a number of other religious denominations that Mormonism might align with on other issues, Mormon leaders have been pro-vaccine. And so when uh, 
the pandemic hit, uh, church leaders from the very beginning were like, we are praying for a vaccine. We're looking forward to a vaccine. And when the vaccines came out, LDS leaders were the first ones to in Utah to go out and actually get the vaccine and encourage Mormons to do likewise. And yet large numbers of Mormons didn't because after decades of cultivating this relationship with a conservative political culture, now many more American Mormons are taking their cues from Sean Hannity more than they are LDS leaders. I imagine lots of evangelical communities, white evangelical communities at least, are doing the same. At the same time, there's a number of, you know, younger generation of Mormons who are aghast at this, especially those who lean more liberal, more progressive, and general study and show and studies generally show that younger Mormons tend to be uh, liberal who are looking at this Mormon culture that is becoming synonymous with conservative culture and wondering, do I have a place? Do I want to remain in this tradition? If they decide to remain in the tradition and try to help reform it, that would be one thing. But if history teaches us anything, as long as LDS leaders are not providing a space for those more liberal-minded members, they're likely to leave and leave Mormonism to continue on its more rightward trajectory. And I think that's a crisis at the heart of the LDS institution. Religion in general, Mormonism in particular, is always a fluid function, that identities are never stable, that they're often changing from generation to generation. And I think it's sometimes easy to lose sight of that when we're so uh, so entrenched in a moment where it seems that everything is so clear-cut and partisan and divided that these same dividing lines that seem so entrenched today might not be the case in a generation. Mm. You're the author of The Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire on the American Frontier, and you're the editor of A Companion to American Religious History. You are interested in history with a lens really focused on religion, but you don't teach religion. I I teach religion sometimes, but I also teach American revolution. It's one of those where it's depending on what your department needs are. But I'm definitely interested in religion and Mormonism as a lens to understand religion. I have to tell you, Benjamin Park, talking to you makes me want to go back to school. (laughs) Well, that's my job. I I have to wake (laughs) up every morning and get a freshman interested in history, which is a challenge both daunting and exciting. It is indeed. Benjamin Park is an assistant professor of history at Sam Houston State University in Texas. He's also the author of a new book, Kingdom of Nauvoo, The Rise and Fall of a Religious Empire on the American Frontier. That won the Mormon History Association's Best Book Prize. Links to his essay about Captain Maroney are available in this week's show notes. Coming up, we hear how some of our assumptions about the role of religion on January 6th may, well, be wrong. You're listening to Inspired, a production of Interfaith Voices. Stay with us. (laughs) 